listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for December 2014. Today's episode is titled, Preparation for Success, Being Sent. The pedestrian view of work is simple. Work is utilitarian. It's a vehicle for workers to make money so they can live as they wish. Little consideration is given to those served, which means their value proposition will not be delivered with excellence. Just consider your own experience. Is the norm truly stellar quality products and services, or do you find mediocrity is more the norm? A key to preparation for individual success is the conviction of being sent. To build excellent organizations, management must build with people who have a profound sense of the call of God on their lives and are called to be part of the organization. Such people will have C4 to work in their respective roles. They will work with a pure motive of obedience to God and will therefore display a sense of mission and passion in delivering world-class value to those the organization serves. A culture built with people who understand they are sent will bring life and prosperity to all and glory to God. This is true success, both individually and organizationally. And now Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Preparation for Success, Being Sent. I want to continue the theme that I started um, oh, last month when I did two sessions on preparation for success. And I'm assuming everybody here wants to be successful. Uh, most of us may not have a good understanding of what that means. So what we did in the first session, as you may recall, is we talked about the definition of success. And just to go back and quickly review that, I want to remind you of a couple of texts uh, one of which is really a scary text. Do you find that there's certain scripture that are scary? Well, here's a scary one. It's in the, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. It's the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. It's in Matthew chapter 7. And it's a picture of Judgment Day. And everybody's clear that even though we know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, and therefore we are, we have eternal life, and we will not suffer the pain of eternal death, we still will be held accountable. You know, what we do here is meaningful. It's important that we obey God and we will be held accountable for what we do. So on that day, uh, it, we get glimpses of that day in various passages, and one of them here is in Matthew chapter 7, starting with verse 21. And Jesus uh, says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the term kingdom of heaven obviously has uh, various senses of it. There is very, very much a sense of a present tense reality of the kingdom, that the kingdom is here, the kingdom is now. There's also a future sense reality that the kingdom is to come. So this appears to be the future sense reality he's talking about. So not everyone will say, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven in the future. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So that becomes the standard. In the future, when we're held accountable, the question is, were we obedient to the will and by implication the ways of God? And then I will declare to them, excuse me, many will be, excuse me, go back. That was verse 21. 22 says, Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Now, the implication in how Jesus is going to respond to this is, yes, you've done those things. 
And most of us, particularly in the charismatic stream, would think, hey, that's a pretty good evidence of doing the will of God. We've cast out demons, we've done wonders, we've prophesied in your name. We think that's a pretty good sense of those are things God wants done. And certainly he does, but there's a caveat here. And he says this, I, then he declared to them, I never knew you. Now that's a startling statement. Why would he say it to these people that have done these signs and wonders? He says, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So you see here, he's talking to people that many of us today would think we're doing good things, things that would please him. So what is, what is the, what's the catch here? Well, I think the catch is when you do these things that appear to be pleasing to the Lord, but you don't do them according to his will and his ways, it is not pleasing. That's what he's saying here. So we've got to get clear that success in life is being able to stand before him, give a good account, and hear, well done. Not hear, I never knew you. Well, how does that happen? Well, we have to learn to walk in the will and ways of God. It's not enough to be able to externally do something, to be able to prophesy, to be able to cast out a demon, to be able to, to facilitate healing in someone. That's not enough. It's what's going on inside that's more important. And so that gives us a clue of what success is. Then we will look to John 17, 4, where Jesus, at the end of his life, is looking back on his life. And he gives us this incredible statement, of, which I think is the classic, to me, the correct definition of success. He says, Father, I brought you glory on earth. By completing the work you gave me to do. Each one of us has a work assignment. You know, how well do we understand and know what that work assignment is? How well have we executed that work assignment? Have we done it according to the will and ways of God? Certainly Jesus did. Which is why the Father, you know, was pleased with him. He was glorified because he was obedient to the Father and did what the Father directed him to do. So the definition of success that I tried to share with you last month was obedience to the will and ways of God. And the will of God is a specific call of God on your life to do what he's created you to do. The ways of God are approaching life from a biblical worldview, learning to live principled based on the truth of the word of God. So that's the definition of success that I offered to you. Now that's very different from most people. Most people think success is money. In fact, if you were to ask someone, is Carlos Slim a success? You know who Carlos Slim is? Some of you know who Carlos Slim is? He's allegedly the wealthiest man in the world. He's a telecom um, you know, giant down in New Mexico. I think he has a monopoly down there. I think it's how he got his money largely. Probably through more graft and corruption than honesty. And, but he is noted by Forbes as being the wealthiest man in the world, something over $70 billion in net worth. Now, Bill Gates is just a paltry, I think, $53, 54000000000 billion, so he's a distant second. But we would, we would immediately say, you know, Carlos Slim, Bill Gates, Warren Buffett, we'd say they're a success because they have money, right? 
But by Jesus' definition, the only real measure of success is obedience to the will and ways of God. Now, that's a totally different standard. Now, Jesus understood this very clearly and lived that way. Because at the end of his life, he's penniless, he's homeless, he's jobless, he's rejected by the religious leaders, rejected by the political leaders, abandoned by his followers, tried and convicted as a criminal, and executed. That's our leader. Who wants to follow that? The only way it makes sense to follow that is you've got to see beyond the natural to the reality he obeyed the will and the ways of God. So we were asking, we were setting all this up, asked the question, okay, exactly how do you prepare for success? You know, we know how to prepare to get a job. I was talking to a client yesterday. His, his teenage son, he's I think a senior in high school, has decided he doesn't want to go to college. So his dad said, okay, we'll do a little exercise here. I want you to do a budget. You develop this budget and tell me, you know, where you want to live. What kind of house do you want to live in? And he said, well, he described his house. He said, fine, here's a mortgage payment. Now, we need to put in all the other things that go into living in that house and where you want to live. Now, what kind of income do you need? And they came up and developed, a, you know, an income that he needed. And he says, okay, now you don't have a college degree, so what kind of job are you going to get? And so they came up with a job, and they figured out what kind of pay you're going to get. So they got that. Then they calculated the income and compared it to the budget. There's a big gap, a big gap. So it was a great exercise to illustrate the unreality that the young man was in. And so that led then to the, the challenge. You need to prepare for success. If you believe you're supposed to live consistent with that budget, and that's a point of faith when you develop a budget, you believe God has led you to that level of standard of living, then how do you prepare for that? Well, that's a simple illustration of this reality. Now, in many ways, that is very, a very superficial way to prepare for success. So Jesus gave us, I think, a much more profound way to prepare for success in Luke chapter 2. We get a glimpse of this. This is when he's 12 years old. You know, we know very little about Jesus' life. We know about his birth, we have a little incident at age 12, and then he's grown. So you say, wow, we, don't, we just don't have a lot of details here, but we do have a little glimpse here when he's age 12. In Luke chapter 2, verse 40, he starts and he says, The child grew and became strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. His parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast. In other words, every year they made this journey. This was probably about a 60-mile walk from Nazareth to Jerusalem. Probably took them about three days. And they usually traveled in groups for just for protection. Because, you know, they didn't have the highway patrol out there to help them if they had robbers. And they didn't have anybody to communicate. didn't have cell phones. didn't have the Internet. So they had to do things to protect themselves. So they went up to the feast, and when they had finished the days, when the feast is over, and the feast lasts about a week, <clears throat> so they, they returned, and the boy lingered behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother did not know it. So we got this big group of people, and they just assumed Jesus is with them, and they're walking back. But supposing he was to be in their company, they went a day's journey and sought him among their relatives and acquaintances. They start looking for him a day out. So they're about a third of the way back, 
to uh, Nazareth, and they start looking for him. They can't find him. Where is he? So when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem seeking him. Now it was after the, after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, both listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. Now I don't know about you, but I, I don't know that I've ever met a twelve-year-old that astonished me. That that is not, you know. Not a common thing. I, I'm I'm actually getting ready to do something I haven't I've never done before, and I'm very excited about it. Um, I studied physics uh, under the tutelage of people that did not believe in God. They were naturalists. They believed that only natural reality existed. So I've never been trained to think biblically about science. So I've had to study that on my own. And I've asked the Lord in recent years if He'd grant me an opportunity to. To begin to share what I think I'm learning about a biblical worldview of science. Well, I have an opportunity to teach some eighth graders. And my topic is the biblical worldview of the periodic table. And I am pumped. I'm excited about that. I'm more excited about that than almost anything I've done in the last five years. Because I feel like the Lord has given me some insight into the periodic table. And even the history of how it developed. And it was godly men who uncovered it. And so I'm excited to share this with these eighth graders who will be, what, 13, 14 years old, something like that. I'm not expecting brilliance out of them. You know, I'm hopeful they will listen well enough that we can have a good conversation. So, I, you know, 12-year-olds, 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds, you don't expect a lot out of them. But here's one who is who's blowing away the greatest theologians of his day with his insight into the Old Testament scripture, which, by the way, that was his scripture, was the Old Testament. And so um, they have this conversation going on, and this goes on for several days. So in the meantime, Mary and Joseph, they come back to Jerusalem looking for him, and it took them three days to find him. So, you know, he might have spent, who knows, four days with these theologians in conversation. Don't you know that would have been a rich conversation? You'd like to hear that, what was going on there? And so when they saw him, that is Mary and Joseph, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? See, they find find him in the temple talking to these theologians. And then Mary says, look, your father and I have sought you anxiously. We've been looking, we've been worried, we've been concerned. And he said to them, why do you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Now that's an amazing comment there. It's also an interesting comment because this word business is not in the Greek text. It's not there. It's literally, I must be about my fathers. It's a possessive use of the word fathers, but it doesn't really explain that any further. So the translators have assumed, and this is probably a reasonably valid assumption, that he's referring to you know, what the father's concerned with. So how do we express what the father's concerned with? So we'll use the word business. So may not be the greatest way to translate it, but Jesus is saying my agenda, and I think this is the essence of it, my agenda is the will of the father. That's what my agenda is. And you don't you know that's what I must be about? 
Now, it's easy for us to think, well, that he was Jesus, so that was what he would be about. But we're different. We've got to be about our respective jobs and what we need to do. But the reality is we should have the same agenda. We should be about the Father's will. So he was uh, profoundly clear, particularly for a 12-year-old, about what life is all about. Getting lined up with the will and ways of God. Now, so... In the second session I did with you, I pointed out the importance of preparing to do the will and ways of God by being grounded in Scripture. So if you want to be a success, it starts with an S. The next S is Scripture. Okay? The Scripture must be clear to you. That is, you have to be a student of Scripture. You have to get a clear understanding of what it's saying and how it applies to you. So that's the first step. The next step is you've got to have a profound sense of being sent. A profound sense of being sent. To be a success, you've got to be grounded in Scripture, and you have to have a sense of being sent. You see this, but when he says, I must be about my father's business, I must, I have no choice. Because I was sent. This is why I've come. Now, it's easy for us today to to kind of dismiss some of these things Jesus says because it's like, well, he was the son of God. Well, guess what? If you know him, you're a son of God. So what's true of him is true of us. And so we must get a profound sense of being sent. So let me let me point you to another text here that really says some basically the same thing. And it's a text that we all know, but we probably haven't thought a lot about it particularly in light of what we're talking about this morning. This is Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. In fact, arguably, this is the clearest presentation of the gospel that we have in Scripture. And you know this. You've probably heard messages on this, heard this from the earliest days as a believer. If you grew up as a believer, you heard this growing up. Ephesians 2, verse 8. For by grace you've been saved through faith... And that not of yourself is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see, verses 8 and 9 are pretty easy. I grew up Baptist, and I I pretty well got verses 8 and 9 as a Baptist. What I didn't get as a Baptist... And I'm not blaming it on the Baptists. This could be my problem. But I did not understand verse 10. It did not make sense to me. What's verse 10 got to do with verses 8 and 9? Well, you've got a conjunction there, for. And as one theologian says, whenever you see the word for, you have to ask yourself, what is it there for? (laughs) There's a reason it's there. So it's a connector. It tells you the the reason why you are saved. Immediately, I I was up at a a church a couple years ago, and I I asked the question, why are you saved? And these were the leaders in the church. And so they start popping out answers. To go to heaven. You know, to, to glorify God. To enjoy life with the Father. And we start popping off things like that, which, I mean, those are all... Yeah, reasonable answers, but they're incomplete. You know, what does what Ephesians 2.10 say about salvation? 
It says we have been saved to work. Now that's that's really easily easily misunderstood today because we have these uh, thought police running around, and anytime they hear works, they immediately accuse you of being a legalist. So allow me to define a legalist here. A legalist is someone who believes that you have to do works to be acceptable with God. That is not what we're saying here. That's not what this text says. This text says there's no work you can do. Look at look back at verses 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourself is the gift of God, not of works. And that word work in verse 9 is the same Greek word that shows up in verse 10. It's the word ergon. It's the same word in both, both verses. So we are not saved by works that we do, but once we are saved, we work. Now, see, we've got to get real clear on that. And you've got to be able to articulate that because the thought police are going to attack you. When you start talking about obedience to God and alignment with God and working, you know, things like this, they will accuse you of being a legalist. So you need to be able to define legalism and explain to them why the gospel is not legalistic. And this is a great text to take them to. We're not saved by works. There's nothing I can do to gain acceptance with God in and of myself. It is a free gift given to me, but now once I have been given that gift, how do you know I have that gift? Well, one of the ways you know is now I am a servant to the will and ways of God. I'm working to accomplish His will and His ways. So I work. My work validates the reality of my salvation. My work does not save me. It's a sign that I am saved. So, we have to get clear. We are here. Once we come to Christ, you have been drafted into a workforce. And now your job is to do your assignment, whatever that is, according to the will and ways of God. Now, it's important to note, if you're going to get the sense that you have been sent, that you see what all of what verse 10 says. It's not only you're called to work, you've been called to specific works, You see, you've been created in Christ Jesus. That is, you are individually created in Christ Jesus. Now, one of the ways you know that is, are you individually saved? Verses 8 and 9, is that talking about individuals? Yeah, I would think it is. Salvation is an individual reality. If it's an individual reality, then your work assignment is an individual reality. That flows. You can't... You can't have 8 and 9 be individual and then verse 10 is very nebulous. No, verse, verse 10 is very specific. He's created you for a specific a work assignment. And then he says that work assignment happens in the context of his meta narrative. Now, he doesn't use that word, but that's the sense. Because it says this thing, this work assignment we have, God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, when you prepare something beforehand, what is that? That's a plan, isn't it? That's what a plan is. It's something prepared beforehand. We've got, like, here, we got a game plan. This is how we're going to execute. This is what we're going to do. When we're going to do it, how we're going to do it. Well, God has a plan. The theologians call that a meta narrative. Meta narrative means the great story. There's a great story of history, which is all centered on Christ. And what he's saying is you've been saved 
to perform work in his grand story. And so now you get a sense of being sent. You didn't just show up and you don't get to pick whatever you want to do. You have been sent by God to perform specific work in his grand story. And that's where Jesus was. Jesus was in Jerusalem getting grounded in scripture to do his assignment in the meta narrative. That was his preparation for success. And that's how we have to prepare for success. We have to go get grounded in scripture and then we have to get a profound sense of being sent by the Father into a, a particular context in which we work in accordance with the will and ways of God, in accordance with his meta narrative. See, this is the sense that Jesus had. And if you don't have that sense, it's really hard to really see, you know, how to prepare yourself for success. My wife is one of the greatest examples of someone who works out of a profound sense of being sent. When our daughters were graduating from high school and we were looking at being empty nesters, that's a real interesting experience for you. If you haven't been there, that's a... It's very different. All of a sudden, the house gets quiet. (laughs) Activities change. It's like you actually have time to look at your spouse and talk to one another. It's really quite different. So my wife, at that point, she sits back and looks at this and says, You know, um, I really don't like staying home just cleaning the house. I really don't like that. And she said, You know, I, I tried volunteer work. I really didn't like that. I try to do all these uh, Christian book clubs. You know, there are these Christian book clubs around where you can go. And, you know, you probably just about every day you can go to one for lunch and, you know, meet with the ladies and you read a book together and just talk and have fellowship. She said, I really don't want to do that either. And I tried my hand at fashion world and I didn't really want to do that. So she's going about all these things she doesn't want to do. So I'm saying, well, what do you want to do then? <laughs> where is this going? And she says, I really want to teach. And then she said, my father told me when I was a little girl, you need to be a teacher. And so we sat back and looked at that and realized that she had the training to do it. She had, had, she had been trained under a very godly woman in a Christian school. When I was in graduate school, she was teaching under this woman. And then when our girls came along, uh, she stopped working and focused on them. But in the midst of doing that, she had actually started a, a private preschool at our church that today it's still going on and it was started back 30 years ago and that little preschool is still going on well my wife started it and basically had the vision for it organized it set up and the things that she set up are still being done and we looked at it well that's interesting you know you've really even though you've been raising girls for the last 20 years you've really had your hand in education in, in many ways And she said, yeah, I think I'm supposed to do it. And I said, fine, I support it. So she went out, and within two months she had had a job at a Christian private school. Within two years she was running that private school, and she's been running it ever since. But I was talking to her last night. I said, I'm going to, she said, what are you going to share with the guys? I said, I'm going to share about, you know, having, having, have a sense of being sent to do what you're doing as a preparation for success. You'll never be successful at what you're doing. If you don't have a sense that God has sent you on that mission. And she said, you know, I feel that way. I am sent. And that's the reason I think I've had the favor and the success I've had in my career. I said, I agree. 
You have a profound sense of being sent. Well, that's how, that's how Jesus lived. That profound sense of being sent. Now, you can't just muster up a sense of being sent. You know, you have to have a profound revelation of what you're sent to do. So how would you get that revelation? How would you discover what you are sent to do? And let me suggest that money's not the measuring stick. If you chase money, you'll probably be off course. You've got to have a sense of the call of God on your life. So how would you come up with that? How would you discern the call of God on your life? Well, let me suggest there's a principle we have in Scripture. You know, God is so gracious, he gives us principles to guide us into what he wants us to do. We can discover his will by walking out the reality of the principle. And the principle is called the C4 principle. The C4 principle is found in numerous texts in Scripture. I only have time to go over one with you this morning. I'm going to do it real quickly. Uh, I've got a whole seminar that I spend unpacking what this principle looks like and how to walk it out. So all I can do in five or ten minutes is just give you a little snapshot of it and point you to that seminar for more training. But this principle shows up in numerous places. You find it in qualifying people for construction work. You find it in qualifying people for legal work and conflict resolution. You find it in qualified people for doing artistic work or finding for people doing leadership or how about food distribution or how about church leadership. All of those contexts are specifically addressed in Scripture and the C4 principle is used to qualify people to do those things. So it's, a, it's not just a one-shot one kind of thing. It only appears one time in Scripture, like the Great Commission. Do you know the Great Commission only appears one time in Scripture? You know, this thing appears multiple times. It's like God's trying to make a point. He wants you to get this. This is a principle he's given us to discover his will for our lives. And we need to get clear on it. So since I only have a few minutes here, I'm going to have to pick a text. Um, I'm going to pick Acts 6. That's probably one of the clearest. This is about food distribution. So those of you that are called to the, the world of food distribution, this, is very, this will be speaking to you very specifically. Uh, this is an amazing text, and of course we could spend a long time on this, looking at all the nuances of this text. It has a lot of things to say, but I'm just going to focus on, on seeing the C4 principle as the tool that's used to discern who's supposed to do the work of food distribution. Acts chapter 6, verse 1, Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Now, that obviously is the daily distribution of food. And you know that from the next verse. He says, Then the twelve summoned the multitudes of the disciples and said, It's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Now, please note here, he's not saying that it's inferior for them to leave the word of God and serve tables. He's saying it's not correct. You know why it's not correct? It's not their calling. You do your calling. You know, if the calling to be a Bible teacher is no different from the calling to be a salesman. It's to say it's a calling. And if I try to leave my role to do somebody else's calling, I'm in sin. If you try to leave your role to do my calling, you're in sin. You do your do your calling. That's what Jesus did. He did his calling. We've got to learn to do our calling. 
Verse 3, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this work. Now, did you see C4 there? It's right there. Yeah. Yeah. First one, seek out. He's telling them, he's telling the, the congregation of believers, seek out, which means you're looking to recognize. Okay, you the one? Okay, that would be calling. Calling has two aspects to it. There is a caller. That's an external aspect. And then there's an internal witness in your heart that you are indeed the called one. So that's the seek out. That's the calling. Seek out from among you seven men of good reputation. Now what is that? That's the character. Good reputation as a man who has godly character. In some places where the C4 principle is presented, it actually says men full of the Spirit, as it does here. It says full of the Holy Spirit. And then he says wisdom. Now what's wisdom? Wisdom is the skill to live life well. It's the skill to perform functions well. You know, some of you... You know, are various things you do, whether computer programming, air conditioning work, or managing a company, or selling, or whatever you do, you know, you need skill to do it, which means you need wisdom. Now, let me define wisdom for you. And I got this from Dr. Bruce Waltke, who is an Old Testament scholar whom I studied under many years ago, a very godly man. He starts out by saying that you need to understand knowledge first. Knowledge is an understanding of how God created the universe to work. Okay, that seems pretty clear. That sounds like a good definition of knowledge. And then he said, wisdom is now the skill to use knowledge to make right choices. Another way to say it, it's the skill to live well. So wisdom is built on knowledge. Wisdom presumes knowledge, and wisdom is now the skill to use knowledge to accomplish the will and ways of God. So, these people are, are supposed to be called. They're supposed to be of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit. That is, they have godly character. And they're supposed to have capability. So we have calling, character, capability. And now he says, whom we may appoint over this business. That's called commissioning. You know, when the military commissions an officer, what do they do? They appoint him to a particular position. We commission you as a lieutenant in the United States Navy. So they have laid their hands on him and called him into that position and commissioned him to go do that. So commissioning is about authority figures. Calling is about authority figures. So the first two Elements of C4 are about authority figures in your life. Having them in your life, calling you out, and then commissioning you. So think of the calling as drawing to you and commissioning as sending out. So this is the C4 principle here that's used to appoint people to do food distribution. Now, interesting, we don't have time to, to talk about this, but... He actually uses the word ministry in reference to this work. 
In this text, he, he shows us that the word ministry, as we commonly understand it today, we misunderstand it. The proper understanding of the word ministry is to do whatever you're called to do. That's ministry. In fact, the word translated in English, ministry, the Greek word is diakonia. And diakonia means to execute the commands of another. So whatever your calling is, that is your ministry. And you're there to execute the commands of Christ. That is what you're called to do. So C4 is a tool to help you identify that calling. Now let me go on and just read a few more verses here because there's another aspect that he, he really reinforces. That is the commissioning aspect. Verse 4, he says, But we, that is the apostles, will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word, because that's what we're called to do. And the same pleased the whole multitude, and they chose, and then he lists the men that they chose. And verse 6 says, They brought these before the apostles, and when they had prayed over these men, they laid hands on them. Now, what do we call that? We call, we call that ordination, don't we? Yeah, when I was ordained as an elder, they, there were a group of men, and they had me kneel down, they laid hands on me, and they prayed over me. We call that ordination. Well, they ordained these guys to food distribution. Maybe there's something we need to see here that we're not, we're not seeing very clearly. But here, what, what really got me here was verse 7. What happens when you get people now doing the call of God, doing the ministry God's called them to do, whether it's the ministry of construction, the ministry of sales, the ministry of management, you know, the ministry of, you know, of teaching, whatever that your ministry is. When you do that and you line up with the will and ways of God, as they're talking about here, look what it says in verse 7. Then the word of God spread. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Could it be that what's impeding our ability to make disciples at a more profound level is we don't understand how we are sent and how to get lined up with how we have been sent? I suggest that is a profound reality we need to wrestle with. So those of you that hire people, one of the things you need to be looking for is, is that person sent? Because if you want, you want that person to be a success, and you should want them to be a success, because if you want to be a success, you need your people to be a success. You, you need to work with people who are preparing for success. So you need to say, are they sent? If you're not sent... You know, then you're probably not supposed to work with me. You need to go where you're sent. Where are you sent? Do you have any clue where you're sent? What's your C4? What do you have C4 to do? That's a clue where you're sent. And so we've got to begin to guide people into alignment with biblical principles. And that's what will prepare them for success. So you've got to define success correctly. It's obedience, alignment with the will and ways of God. You've got to be grounded in Scripture You've got to know the Word of God. The, the Word of God is relevant to everything, including the periodic table. And when you begin to approach everything from the standpoint of what does Scripture say? What does Christ have to say about this? How do I do this work based on Christ? 
And I can show you, to tell you, this is challenging and vexing for many of us. We, we have to be trained. We've got to be taught to think like that. But we've got to get grounded in Scripture, and then we have to have a profound revelation that we've been sent to do whatever it is we believe we're supposed to do. When you have those things, those pieces, those ingredients in place in your life, you are preparing for a successful life. And that's the life Jesus lived. And we have the grace and the ability to live that life if we live it as he lived it. So may God give us grace to do that. Well, Father, we do thank you for your word and we thank you for your truth. We pray that you just give us increased revelation, increased understanding, increased insight in how to live according to your will and your ways. Grant us grace, Lord, to get a profound revelation of being sent and to get lined up with what you've called us to do, what you've created us to do. Give us a profound revelation of being grounded in Scripture. Make us students of your word. And Father, give us clarity that we must define success as you do, as obedience and alignment with you. So Father, we commit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.